Philippians chapter 4, verses 10 through 13, the great apostle Paul writes, I rejoice in the Lord greatly that now at length you have revived your concern for me. You were indeed concerned for me, but you had no opportunity. Not that I am speaking of being in need, for I have learned in whatever situation I am to be content. I know how to be brought low, and I know how to abound. In any and every circumstance, I have learned the secret of facing plenty and hunger, abundance and need. I can do all things through him who strengthens me. A piece of fruit, that's all it took to awaken in Adam and Eve a desire for more. God created this paradise, and he put Adam and Eve in it. Uh, the weather was so perfect that it made the weather in San Diego jealous. The beauty was absolutely breathtaking. Adam and Eve, they lacked absolutely nothing. Everything that was in the garden was theirs for the taking. They could eat all that God had provided except from one tree. And sadly and tragically, the, the very thing that God said was off limits was the thing that they wanted. Now listen carefully. As we know, Adam and Eve's discontentment with what God had sovereignly provided for them plunged humanity into the misery of sin and judgment. Let me say that again. Adam and Eve's discontentment with what God had sovereignly provided for them plunged humanity into the misery of sin and judgment. And we can rightly say that discontentment is a problem as old of time in fact, we could say that we inherited the tendency to be discontented, to be dissatisfied from our original parents, Adam and Eve. And Satan awakened this dissatisfaction and this discontentment in Eve by suggesting that God was withholding something good from them. Satan convinced Eve that, God, that what God had provided wasn't quite good enough, that there was more available to them, perhaps something better to them. And why should it be off limits to them anyway? He said you could eat everything, but why is he keeping this one tree from you? Why keep this one tree that is loaded with this beautiful, luscious fruit? Why is he keeping that from you? Hey, Eve, look at it. Look how big it is. Look how shiny it is. I bet it's packed with flavor. I bet it's overflowing with juice. I, I bet if you bite into it, you get a squirt in the eye. It's so juicy. Now, Eve, why did God tell you that was off limits? You know, Satan still uses the same tactics today. Satan still uses subtle suggestions that perhaps God is holding out on us, that perhaps God is withholding something good from us. Now, he probably doesn't come to us individually and whisper that in our ears, but he has created a system, the system of the world, in which what we hear these messages, well, what's wrong with that? Why don't you have that? How many times have you heard an advertisement and said, you deserve this, or this is your right? 
And so this seed is planted. For instance, a young person may see all their friends with a mate. Then all of a sudden you begin to wonder, well, why has God not given me a boyfriend? Or why has God not given me a girlfriend? And you begin to doubt and you ask yourself, well, why has, is, is God withholding something good for me? And see, it just takes that little seed that's planted in your heart and your mind that can bloom into this ugly weed of discontentment. And suddenly, instead of trusting in God's providence, instead of trusting in the sovereignty of God, you begin to question his wisdom. You begin to question his providence. You begin to question why he does what he does. You may even begin to question if he truly loves you. Because after all, if he loved me, why would he withhold this from me? I've got two main points, and here, here's the first one. The sin of discontentment is comprehensive. The sin of discontentment is comprehensive. And here's what I mean by that. Discontentment is common to all of us. Say, so why is that true? Because we are all what? Born sinners. And because we are sinners by nature, guess what this world is characterized by? Discontentment. Discontentment is one of the leading characteristics or features of the culture that we find ourselves in. Again, go back to the advertisers. You deserve this. You need this. It's your right to have this. And when we don't have all of these things, what happens? Well, we begin to desire them. Perhaps we become envious and jealous of those who do have them and we don't. If you don't believe that we are a discontented people, let's just roll the calendar back about 12 months. We're in the midst of COVID-19. Did you meet a lot of people who were contented? Did you meet a lot of people who were glad about everything that was going on. We had the, the mask wearers uh, discontent with the non-mask wearers, and we had the non-mask wearers discontent with those who were wearing the mask, and now it's uh, the, the vaccinated people are discontent with those who aren't vaccinated, and uh, those who aren't vaccinated are discontent with those who say they ought to be vaccinated. Discontentment, it's rampant, it's pervasive. It, it sneaks up us on us sometimes. Do a little visual mental exercise with me. Pretend I've got my phone in my hand. You've got your phone in your hand, and you've punched on your contact list, and just start scrolling through that list. Just read through some of the names. Do you come across to anybody that you would classify as a contented person? Oh, there's Bob. Oh, he's certainly not contented. Uh, there's uh, there's uh, Susie. Oh, she's not contented. Uh, there's Jim Bob. Oh, he's not contented. Uh, there's Ralph. Uh, he's not contented. You probably go from A to Z. You scroll and you scroll and you scroll. And you don't find anybody who that you would say is really satisfied with life. You don't find many people who are content with who they are, what they have. And how about this? What they look like. Why is cosmetic surgery all the rage? Because we're not happy with what we look like. 
Not me, I've never been afflicted with that problem. I think, it's, you know, I think God got it spot on, amen, and, you know, leave that to somebody else. But it is a symptom of the fact that we are not content with how God has made us. We're not content with our jobs. We're not content with our homes or cars or the size of our televisions. We're not content with our status in society, whatever that may be. We all think that we deserve more. We all think that we deserve better. And it all adds up to that we are a truly discontented lot. And what is true of the population as as a whole is true of the Christian population as well. And the fact that Paul saw fit to address this problem is clear and convincing evidence that believers are not immune to the problem of discontentment. So we ask ourselves, why? Why are we so discontented? Well, the soil in which our discontentment grows is fertilized by envy and jealousy. And if we begin to think this through, if we begin to think this through, we we begin to understand that our discontentment is actually revealing a rejection of the sovereignty of God in our lives. Think that through. Our discontentment discounts the providence of God in our lives. Discontentment reveals our pride and tries to convince us that in our case, well, God is made a mistake in our case that God has got it wrong. And I wonder, could it be that we are perhaps far more envious of others than we may realize? When we envy the possessions, the status, the accomplishments of others, you know what? It breeds discontentment. As Alistair Begg says, envy and contentment never go hand in hand. Covetousness, which is a sin, and contentment, which is a grace, never coexist in our lives. So the question before us this morning is, how do we win this battle with discontentment? How do we develop the mindset? How do we develop the lifestyle where we are no longer suffering from the disease, the malady of discontentment, How can we put to death the sins of envy and covetousness? How can we get to the point in our lives where we are content, but not a contentment that the world would try and offer us, but the contentment that God offers to us? Well, Paul tells us that he has learned the secret of contentment, and the good news is that he will not, indeed he can't keep quiet about it. You know, there are some people who can't keep a secret. You ever been around someone like that? I mean, you know, they they would just burst at the seams if they had to keep it in a moment longer. Well, maybe Paul was that kind of guy. I'm not sure. But thankfully, he knew this secret and he was ready to share it. He was ready to put it in writing. He wanted everybody to know what the secret was. Well, before we get to the secret revealed, we need to understand and comprehend something of the context in which the Apostle Paul is writing these words. Beginning in verse 10 of chapter 4 and continuing down through the rest of the chapter, what we actually have is Paul writing a thank thank you note to the church at Philippi. 
They had sent him this gift. They had sent Epaphroditus to him with this gift to help him in his time of need. And so after addressing other subjects throughout the letter, he finally comes to chapter 4 and verse 10. And from there to the rest of the chapter, it's really about him thanking them for what they have done on his behalf. So let's look at verse 10 together. Paul says, I rejoice in the Lord greatly that now at length you have revived your concern for me. You were indeed concerned for me, but you had no opportunity. Now, the historical background is this, that 10 years or so had passed since the Philippians had been able to send any kind of gift or any kind of support to the Apostle Paul. But when they were once again able to do it, they did send him this gift, and it brought him great joy. Now, I want to make something clear here in case we get a little confused. When Paul says that he's, he's rejoicing over the fact that they, their, their concern for him has been revived, his joy comes from their concern for him, not the cash they sent him. Some may look at that and say, well, why wouldn't you be happy they just sent you a big wad of cash? No, 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 he's not saying that. He's more joyful over the fact that they have expressed their concern for him. Yes, they did it in a very tangible way. Now think about this. Ten years have passed. He's not had any communication with them at all. Perhaps he felt at times like they had forgotten him, that they didn't care for him anymore. And so when Epaphroditus shows up and expresses the fact that they are indeed concerned for him, that brings him joy. Now, I don't have time to develop this this morning in its fullness, but one of the ways that God ministers to us, and we need to take this to heart, one of the ways that God ministers to us is through his people. Now, we know from our study of this letter that Paul wrote this in captivity, if you will. He wrote this letter as a prisoner of Rome, but Paul wasn't in the Roman County Jail. He was confined, for lack of a better term, in his own apartment. But this apartment of imprisonment was not funded by the government. He wasn't being provided for by the taxpayers. When you were awaiting trial in Rome, you were on your own. Yeah, you were chained to that soldier, but Rome wasn't going to feed you. Rome wasn't going to put you up at the local Holiday Inn. You were on your own. You had to come up with your own room and board. But Paul, obviously, he's not a man of means. He's been an apostle. We know that he supported himself by making tents. But here he is. He's under house arrest, which means that he can't work. And if he can't work, he can't make any money. If he can't make any money, how's he going to pay for a place to stay? How's he going to buy his food? How's he going to eat? How was he going to survive? He had to survive. If he was going to survive, he would survive by the generosity of God's people providing for him. And I think this is a good stopping point to ask ourselves a soul-searching question. If others had to depend upon our generosity to survive, would they make it? 
It's an interesting question, isn't it? Now, do you think that Paul went to God through prayer and asked God to supply his basic needs? Of course he did. But have you ever wondered, how did God answer that prayer? I think sometimes in our minds, we, you know, God does work in miraculous ways. But Paul needed something physical. He needed some change. He needed some coin. He had to pay the bills. So how did God supply the need? Did God send out a carrier pigeon with a uh, bag of silver coins in its mouth and miraculously found its way to Paul's dwelling and flew in through the window and dropped it at his feet and made a U-turn and away he went? Is that what happened? No. You see, God normally works through just regular physical means. And the means that he used in this case was the generosity of the believers at Philippi. Say, what's the point? Here it is. The way in which God answered the prayer of the Apostle Paul and supplied his needs was through the people of God. It is cold and calloused to know that someone has a need and we have the ability to meet that need and the best that we say is, I'll be praying for you. Well, wait a minute. I've already prayed about my need. I know I've got a need. Perhaps God wants to meet my need through you. Now, this goes far, further than just money. Uh, for instance, you need comfort. You need support. And we know that God's word offers that to us, right? We find great comfort in the word of God. But there are, are also times in which we are going to be comforted by God's people. There are times when we need that proverbial shoulder to cry on. There are times when we need the support and the encouragement that comes from physical touch, that comes from the people of God. Or how about this? We need wisdom. And yes, the book of James says, hey, if you lack wisdom, ask God and he'll give it to you liberally. God's got plenty of wisdom. He's not hoarding that wisdom. He'll give it to you. And yes, it can come through scriptures. It can come through meditating on the scriptures. But how about this? Have you ever considered the fact that perhaps the wisdom that you see can be brought to you by perhaps an older, more mature Christian whom God has shown you, him, the wisdom that you need? And he comes to you and he shares that with you? See, this is the problem of Christian silence. Too many Christians operate as if they're under a divine gag order. Don't you dare spill the beans. And so nobody can help us because nobody knows that we have a problem. And a problem that is not made public 
has all kinds of room and opportunity to grow and bloom and blossom and finally explode. That everybody knows about the problem. And we could have saved ourselves a lot of grief if we just would have come clean as it were to our brothers and sisters in Christ and sought wisdom and counsel from them. Something to consider, isn't it? So let me say this. And you go home and you think about it. And if I'm wrong, let me know. To reject help from the people of God is to reject the help of God himself. Okay? Well, why is so much time passed between uh, the gifts of financial support for Paul? Well, there's two things we need to consider. First of all, we need to keep in mind that the believers in the church at Philippi had lost their jobs, as we've, as we've learned in our study, because of their faith in Christ. And with the loss of a job normally comes a loss of income. So it's just a, a very practical reason why they weren't able to support him. They were having a difficult time supporting themselves. It wasn't as if they weren't concerned about the Apostle Paul. They obviously were concerned about him. But they simply, in Paul's words, they lacked the opportunity. They lacked the means. They just didn't have the resources to send him a gift. Now, I got to thinking about this, and I thought, you know, I believe that God was teaching both of them a lesson during this time. Obviously, he was teaching the Apostle Paul, hey, depend solely upon me to meet your needs. But he's also teaching the, the believers at Philippi the, the exact same thing. So in this time of waiting, God was still teaching. God was still at work, though perhaps not in the way either party would have liked. Second thing we know this about the Apostle Paul, he was a man on, a move, on the move, right? I mean, this guy was the original Rolling Stone. I mean, he couldn't stay in one place very long at all. He was constantly traveling and establishing new churches, or he was caring for the churches that he had already planted. And in that day and age, you know, very limited means of communication. It would have been next to impossible to have any idea of where the Apostle Paul was at. And even then, the only form of communication they had was what? It was handwritten letters. There was no email. There were no text messages. There was no satellite communications. And once this letter was written, it had to be hand-delivered to Paul. The problem was, where is he? I can see a group of uh, believers sitting around in Philippi and saying, you know, we've got this money to send to Paul, but we just don't know where he's at. And uh, perhaps Bob over here says, you know, I, I, I heard that perhaps he's in Ephesus. And uh, Mary Jane says, no, 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 I, I think he's in Corinth. And uh, John Boy says, no, no, uh, last I heard he's in Thessalonica. Well, word finally reached them that Paul was in prison. Paul was in Rome. And as soon as they could, they sent this tangible expression of their love and concern for him. They sent him this money. And that's why he says, uh, you know, I, I, I'm so grateful that finally at last your concern for me has been revived. That word revived comes from the world of gardening. It pictures the blooming of flowers and the budding of uh, the tree limbs as they shake off the gray cold of winter. And 
stretch out towards the warming sun. See, the concern for Paul out of necessity lay dormant under the winter snows until they finally had the opportunity in which they could send a gift to meet his needs. They loved him. They were concerned for him. They wanted to help him. They just didn't have the opportunity to do so. So we need to understand as we read this text, because as you read it, you may think, well, Paul, that's a little harsh. It's like he's saying, what took you so long? You know, I've been in prison about four years now. Where have you been? No, that's not, that's not what he's saying at all. He's not chastising them and taking so long and sending him a gift. He understood that they were concerned about him, but circumstances did not allow them to express their love and concern for him in a tangible way. So he says, you were indeed concerned for me, but you had no opportunity. He says, I know that your circumstances were such that kept you from helping me. And he reassures them that he's not bitter or angry at them at all when he says in verse 11, look at verse 11, not that I am speaking of being in need, for I have learned in whatever situation I am to be content. Now we read that and we think, oh, okay. But do you see, I don't know if irony is the right word, but do you see that Paul says something that when we begin to think about it, we say, well, Paul, how could you say that? He says, not that I am speaking of being in need. <laughs> Wait a minute, Paul. Uh, you're chained to this uh, burly Roman soldier. Uh, you're under house arrest. You can't work a job. You can't make any money. You can't pay for the joints. You can't pay for your food. What do you mean, Paul, that you're not in need? Not that I speak in I'm speaking of being in need. What do you mean by that, Paul? Of course you have needs. He needed a place to lay his head at night. He needed food to keep him alive. But here's what he's saying. It wasn't his needs that dominated his thinking. And how unlike us is that? Because when we have a need that's all we can think of. How am I going to get this need met? But Paul says, not that I'm speaking of being in need. See, here's the point. He did not look for contentment in physical things. Now, there's a lesson we all need to learn. He understood that his contentment was not where he slept his contentment was not in what he ate. His contentment wasn't even in his freedom. No. He says, I don't find contentment in any of those things. So here we come to the heart of the matter. Paul is going to use this opportunity in which he is thanking them for their gift to teach them one of the most valuable lessons that they, as well as you and I, will ever learn as Christians. And what is the lesson? What is the subject he's addressing or introducing us to? You know what it is? One word, contentment. Contentment. John MacArthur says, contentment is a highly prized but elusive virtue. Contentment is one of those things that everybody would like to have. They may aspire to have it, but relatively few ever seem to achieve it. So let's ask ourselves a couple of diagnostic questions here, okay? How do you know if you're discontent? 
How do you know if you're discontent? Or how does discontentment show up in our lives? Well, ask yourself a couple questions like this. Are you genuinely happy over the success of others even as the success you seek, that you seek seems to elude you? You go into the office tomorrow morning and your boss says, hey, we need to gather around here. We need to have a little uh, uh, huddle before we start the day. And uh, your boss says, uh, hey, Mo, come up here. You're thinking, Mo? What's he want, what's he want Mo? That guy's a stooge. What is, what, Mo? Uh, guys, I'd like to introduce to you uh, your new team lead. And you got a smile on your face, but inside you're thinking, this guy's Mo. He's a stooge. I should be the team lead. Are you okay with your station in life even as you see others who may be less talented than you pull ahead of you? You should have gotten the promotion. You should have gotten the raise. You should have gotten credit for that idea. See, if you can't honestly answer yes to those questions, guess what? You're experiencing discontent. Let me give you some more warning signs that signal a spirit of discontentment in us. One, we've already talked about, are you experiencing envy, jealousy, or covetousness? The neighbor gets a new car, and all of a sudden, you want a new car. Why do they, why do they get a car? I got this stinking Toyota truck. It don't even have power windows. I've got to actually crank them up and down if I want some air in that crazy thing. And your neighbor rolls up in a truck. It costs him 70 grand, and, you know, he drops about three feet to the ground. Yeah. Do you find yourself grumbling, complaining, or moaning about your circumstances? Ooh, this is easy to do, isn't it? Do you find yourself making comparison between yourself and others? Man, I finished first in my class. And she finished dead last. And she's my boss? She makes more than I do? Are you having feelings of bitterness or anger? Are you experiencing worry and anxiety? If you answered yes to even one of those questions, then it's likely that you're discontented. And by the way, I said discontentment is comprehensive. It's also universal. And by that, I mean it affects every level and strata of our society. Those who have absolutely nothing want what? More. And those who have absolutely everything, guess what they want? More. Why? Because we're a discontented lot. So before you think that Paul's words here are for somebody else, you say, well, I'd tune this old boy out for a couple of weeks till he uh, gets all uh, calmed down about this. No, these words are for you. These words are for you. You need to take a good, hard, long reaction, uh, 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 look at your reaction when you hear that somebody may be close to you, maybe not close to you, but they're prospering more than you. What is your reaction? You need to ask yourself when you see, what is my response to what I see taking place in the lives of other people? 
they got this, they got that. And I didn't get that. How do you respond to those things? Are you happy for them? Discontentment, without a doubt, will make you miserable, unhappy, and adds another layer of stress to your life, while contentment brings rest and peace and joy into our lives. Now, you won't be surprised to find out that the Puritans had much to say about contentment. In fact, one Puritan, Jeremiah Burroughs, wrote a book with the title, The Rare Jewel of Christian Contentment, and he defines Christian contentment for us this way. He says, Christian contentment is that sweet, inward, quiet, gracious frame of spirit which freely submits to and delights in God's wise and fatherly disposal in every condition. Say, could you bring that into our century? Yes, I can. In other words, Christian contentment. We experience Christian contentment when we are at the place that we can accept the working of God's providence in our lives without experiencing anger, bitterness, anger, uh, envy, worry, and anxiety. In fact, we take joy, we delight in the providential working of God in our lives. That's what it means to be content as a Christian. Okay. I take joy in what God is doing in my life. So my first broad statement was this. The sin of discontentment is comprehensive. Second statement is I want to change the way I say it. While discontentment is comprehensive, so too is biblical contentment. Discontentment is a sin. Contentment is a grace. Both are comprehensive. Let's look at verse 12. I know how to be brought low and I know how to abound. In any and every circumstance, I have learned the secret of facing plenty and hunger, abundance, and need. So what Paul's saying is here, I know how to live in humble circumstances. Literally, that brought low referred to a position in society. Remember that the Apostle Paul at one time, he was a Pharisee among the Pharisees, right? He had the best education. When you talked about Pharisees, you knew the name of Saul. He had a certain amount of status attached to him. He had a reputation. But when he came to Christ, what did he say? I counted all that stuff as loss. Got to the point where the Pharisees would hear the name Saul, Paul, and they'd spit in the ground. They wanted nothing to do with this guy. He was on the outs. That's what he means when he says, I, I know how to be brought low. But then he says, I know how to abound. In other words, he says, I know how to live with some kind of prosperity. I know what it is to have a few bucks left over at the end of the month. He says, I know what it's like to eat ramen noodles and Audi uh, mac and cheese. And I also know what it's like to have a filet mignon and some truffles from time to time. He says, I know what it's like to have a freedom. And I know what it's like to be in chains. I think of all the things, this had to have been the hardest for Paul here was a guy who literally traveled all the time. Now, those of you who know me well, I, don't, I, I could care less if I ever leave the city of Berea to limits, I'll be honest with you. Except to go to Culver's for lunch once a week, amen? 
But here's Paul. He was a guy on the move. He was constantly on the move. But here he is. He's, he's confined. And he's got this soldier, this big, burly Roman soldier that's, that's chained to him. And I just picture in my mind, you know, the uh, soldier moves the wrong way and the hilt of his sword goes into Paul's side and Paul says, hey, would you mind? Or perhaps uh, the guy's culinary habits uh, created some digestive issues and Paul would say, come on, man. Give a guy a break. But here he is. He, he, he's, he, he's been restricted. But yet he says, I'm content. I'm content. So we can summarize that by saying that the contentment that Paul has learned to live with is comprehensive. Paul takes this opportunity to teach not only the Philippians, but you and I as well, that it is possible to be content in every situation. Regardless of our circumstances, we can be content. The Christian can never say, if only... If only this were true, then I'd be happy. If only this were true, then I'd be content. And Paul says, no, wait a minute now. You can be content in every situation. Now, I want to point a couple of things out to you. And if you have a highlighter or a pencil or a stylus or whatever you're using, I want to point out a couple, oh, three words actually in verse 12. He says, I know, make a mark there on no. I know how to be brought low. And I know, make another mark there, and I know how to abound. In any, in every circumstance, I have learned, make a mark there by learned, I've learned the secret of facing plenty and hunger, abundance and need. He knows these things. He has learned this. In essence, what Paul is saying is, I have learned the secret. So what can we conclude from Paul's words? Two things. First of all, contentment is learned, meaning it does not come naturally to us. You're not going to wake up tomorrow morning and say, boy, I feel content. Check that off the list. Let's move on to the next thing. It doesn't come naturally to us. It is one of the graces of the Christian life that is developed over time and is purified in the fires of adversity. Second, if we are going to experience contentment in our lives as Christians, it's something that we have to work on. Again, it doesn't come to us naturally. It's not a part of our DNA. It's not a part of our emotional and psychological makeup. Yes, contentment can be ours. Contentment should be ours. But it must be learned and developed. And think about this. How do we learn something? Well, there's two primary ways. One, we get the right kind of information. We have the right kind of input. And then there are other times we simply learn by experience. Uh, you know, you, you touch the, uh, the hot iron, you burn your hand, you, you learn by experience. That was stupid. Don't do that again. Nobody had to tell you that don't do that again. You know not to do that again. And sometimes knowledge is combined with experience. But that's how things are learned. So Dennis Johnson writes, Christian contentment is something that we fight for. We must exert effort to wage war against temptation to complain, to envy others, to fixate on what is uncomfortable and inconvenient and downright wrong in our circumstances. It takes effort. takes time. I don't believe that any of us really arrive at this place, you know, where we don't battle against discontentment. I think Paul battled against discontentment. 
but it is possible to be content. So Paul teaches us that contentment is both a learned skill and a shared secret. Notice at the end of verse 12, Paul says, I have learned the secret. That word secret there means to have insider knowledge. It was used in the first century of mystery religions, you know. And only those who had been initiated into these mystery religions really knew what was going on. It'd be kind of like the Masons today, you know. Uh, you're initiated into learning a funny handshake and uh, wearing an apron when you die. You know, inside knowledge. Got to have inside knowledge. Paul says, I've got inside knowledge. I know the mystery. I know the secret. But again, thankfully for us, he has absolutely no intention of keeping this secret to himself. He wants every Christian to know the secret. But more than just knowing the secret, he wants us to know the source of the secret. He wants us to know the source of the secret so that we can have confidence in the secret. It's one thing to share a secret with someone. Has anyone ever shared a secret with you and your response is, are you sure of that? Oh, I don't see how that can be. Well, Paul says, I've got a secret. But I also want to show you the source of the secret so you can be confident in the secret. So about this time, Paul has us on the edge of our chairs Come on, Paul. Paul, what's the secret? Come on, you can tell me. Come on, Paul, what's the secret? Paul leans in and says, okay, I want you to know the secret. I, I, I want you to know all about it. So here it is. And so he says, the secret to contentment is the same as the source of contentment. I say, Paul, you're talking in riddles? What do you mean? What do you mean by the secret to contentment is the same as the source of contentment? And then Paul says, ah, the source of contentment and the secret of contentment is Christ. Verse 13, I can do all things through him who strengthens me. And we'll look at that in great detail next week. See, verse 13 is the cure to the, the disease we are all afflicted with. The disease of discontentment. But I'm not going to show you the cure until you're convinced of the problem. So I've got homework for you. I want you to go home and maybe ask your spouse or a close friend, do you see any areas of my life in which I'm exhibiting a lack of contentment? It may be something as simple, I say simple, but in our spending habits, right? You know, I know, I know some people, and I'm not, I'm not, I don't have anybody in mind. I'm not poking at anybody, but I know some people that, you know, they got to have a 25 pair of shoes. You only got two feet. I mean, I don't get it. You know, I buy shoes about every 10 years, whether I need them or not. Amen. See, it can just, you say, well, why is that a source of discontent? 
Well, obviously you're you're lacking something, or you wouldn't keep buying stuff that you really can't use or need on on a regular basis. So ask someone and look at your look at your life. Uh, perhaps you know uh, uh, a piece of news has uh, come through to you about somebody that you work with, and you thought that you deserved what they got, and you became envious over that. Or someone got something else. And, you know, Ben created a memory for his girls this week and took them to the Reds game. He didn't ask me to go to the Reds game. Why didn't he ask me to go to the Reds game? I like baseball. I like Skyline Chili. I would have waved a foam finger with the girls. You know? See, is it, you say, oh, you're being, being stupid. Probably, but it, that's, that's how it shows up. It shows up in these small things that we just kind of want to brush aside. But there's always this feeling of unrest, of restlessness, that we just can't seem to shake. Well, perhaps it's because we're not content. And once you have pinpointed the problem, then you'll be ready to accept the cure. And we'll look at that next week.